0: listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey. Before we get started today, some exciting news. KHOL has won its first ever Regional Murrow Award. Edward R. Burrow Awards are among the most prestigious in broadcast and digital news, honoring outstanding achievements in journalism. K2L won the feature reporting category in our region for a story reported and produced by Will Walkie about efforts to curb the spread of chronic wasting disease among Western Wyoming elk. In case you missed it, we'll be replaying that story later in this episode. Also coming up on today's show, A beetle that kills pinyon pines is expanding into new parts of Colorado, and the spread is fueled by drought.
1: Climate change is providing more habitat for the Yips beetles, and so they're moving north, they're killing trees.
0: Plus, the latest episode of KHOL's special limited podcast series, Facets, Voices of the Mountain Life, features some of the pioneering women breaking the glass ceiling in Wyoming.
2: While on many levels, Wyoming and the mountains did seem to be part of the hypermasculine culture, it didn't seem like the whole story.
0: But first, Teton County is trying to step up its defenses and mitigate conflict with bears and other wildlife through new regulations passed earlier this year. Starting July 1st, bear-resistant trash containers will be required in most of Jackson Hole, and other new rules have been set for folks with bird feeders, beehives, and livestock. However, implementing the new policies is easier said than done. KHL's Will Walkie interviewed reporter Billy Arnold of the Jackson Hole News and Guide to learn more.
3: Billy Arnold has reported on almost everything in Teton County. Right now, he's reporting on the environment, among other things, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Thank you so much for joining me, Billy.
4: No problem. Thanks for having me.
3: So the county passed new laws earlier this year, basically requiring new infrastructure aiming to mitigate wildlife conflicts in Jackson Hole. Most notable is bear-resistant trash containers being required countywide for businesses and residents. How's the rollout of that going so far?
4: Yeah, so it's actually a bit hard to say. Um, There are a number of uh, haulers, so trash haulers in the county that are able to provide bear-resistant trash cans to their residential um, customers. Um, we were only able to talk with one holler um, for a story, and that was yellow iron excavating and waste removal. And, you know, they said they've delivered about 20 new trash cans um, since the regulations um, were passed. At the same time, there's a nonprofit named Jackson Hole Bear Solutions, which is an offshoot of Wy- Wyoming Wildlife Advocates, that's raised about $200,000 to buy um, trash cans. They, by Tuesday, had sent out about 113 cans, but Jackson Hole Bear Bear Solutions estimates that we need 3,400 bear-resistant trash cans. Um, and it seems like there's probably still A ways to go
3: so part of these regulations in my eyes are trying to create sort of a culture of bear safety around Jackson Hole the other reason is also trying to crack down on things like wildlife feeding can you talk a little bit about enforcement Um, we know that it's not gonna happen by July 1st but by November 1st they're hoping to have more officers what might enforcement look like say next year at this time
4: for the county um, enforcement is kind of a complicated um, picture the way it works is this is a land development regulation, and my understanding from talking with County Attorney Keith Gingry is that in order for the county to actually issue a fine, um, there's a multi-step process. You know, there's first is sending a letter to someone who's violated um, the code. If that person does not stop that. Action. You know, the next thing that the county can do is take it to a public hearing in front of the board of county commissioners. If the county commissioners decide that there has been a violation it hasn't stopped, they can elevate the the issue to circuit court. And once it goes to circuit court, that's when that person can be fined. So it's a multi-step process to get to a fine. Um, but you know, Keith Gingry pointed out. Uh, that is, you know, the ultimate one end of the enforcement spectrum and, you know, the county officials line has been for some time that um, people will generally stop whatever um, they're doing after they get that um, initial letter from the county.
3: We're going to have a law in the books. A lot of people are going to get bear resistant trash containers. There's still going to be people that can't get it for whatever reason. There's still going to be people that don't want to get it for whatever reason. Is this law going to be enough in the sense that it will actually make a meaningful difference in reducing bear conflicts if there's going to be this percentage of people who aren't going to do it?
4: I don't know the answer to that question. I will say there are definitely barriers to people adopt, like, getting bear-resistant trash cans. Um, Wyoming Wildlife Advocates and their spin-off nonprofit Jackson Bear Solutions is trying to address that by offering, um, you know, Reduce cost trash cans to people that can't afford four hundred dollars for a can. And I think something that I was trying to point out in the article is that bear-resistant trash cans, residential trash cans, are only one part of the picture. There's also commercial dumpsters, which um, haulers are, frankly, it seems, having trouble figuring out how to get um, bear-resistant commercial. Dumpsters. And then there's also just individual um, behavior as well. Some, I talked to a few birders um, who, you know, said they'd been bringing their bird feeders in. Some people had been, you know, still leaving hummingbird feeders up. Um, that still isn't attractant for bears. So there's a few things beyond just bear resistant trash cans that will make, quote unquote, bear proofing um,
3: Jackson Hole a little bit more difficult. Thank you so much for joining KHOL. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me.
0: Arnold's full article featuring more information about Teton County's new wildlife regulations is available at jhnewsandguide.com. Bark beetles are common across the western U.S. They're tiny insects that burrow into the bark of pine trees to lay their eggs, often killing the tree in the process. One way to mitigate beetle outbreaks is through prescribed burns. But as Lucas Brady-Woods of KSJD in Cortez, Colorado reports, the drought conditions fueling their spread aren't so easy to address. This story comes to k through the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition.
5: On a mild spring day in southwest Colorado, Steve Underwood and his crew are tending to burning piles of pinyon pine.
1: The green needles are burning, but the interior heavy stuff is not burning as well. There's a real art to this, to be able to burn it and not have it creep around.
5: Underwood is a forestry and fire management expert. One thing he specializes in is prescribed burns like this one near the San Juan National Forest.
1: These are all pinyons that have been infested with uh, ips beetles so we cut these down last winter um, and we've piled them and now we're going to burn the piles so that we can get rid of the ips population on this parcel
5: the ips beetle or more specifically the pinion ips beetle is an insect that colonizes pinion pines even though the bugs are tiny only about an eighth of an inch long they can still kill trees the burrows they carve in a tree's bark can eventually cut off its flow of nutrients and according to Underwood, ips beetle outbreaks
1: are happening in parts of the region they haven't reached before. Climate change is providing more habitat for the ips beetles. And so they're moving north, they're killing trees. And
5: Underwood's not the only person noticing the drought-induced beetle outbreaks.
6: They are taken away at our forest now that we're um, kind of in this continual drought state.
5: That's Amy Lochner. She's an entomologist with the U.S. Forest Service who specializes in bark beetles like the Ips. She also says that despite the Ips beetles' potentially damaging impact on trees, it's nothing new to the region.
6: It's native, so has been here way longer than any of us have, and it's evolved with the pinyon trees.
5: For example, pinions have developed a defense mechanism against the Ips, the resin they produce underneath their bark. When beetles attack a tree...
6: The tree actually... um, releases that resin and it kind of acts like a water hose and it pushes those beetles out.
5: But the trees need access to enough water to create that resin. So if conditions are too dry, they aren't able to defend themselves. And during widespread drought, when large numbers of trees don't have enough water, beetles spread more easily from tree to tree.
6: The beetles basically just walk right in and then um, they talk to each other with pheromones and that basically says, parties here, come on in. So those attract more beetles.
5: Outbreaks fueled by drought are not unique to ips beetles, though. Drought is one contributing factor in the spread of other bark beetles, like the spruce beetle. The spruce beetle is responsible for killing large areas of spruce forest in the Rocky Mountains. According to Lochner, the spruce beetle has spread so widely that it's running out of trees to colonize. But the spread of pinyon ips isn't to that point yet. And Lochner says there are ways to help mitigate beetle outbreaks, even on the level of individual properties. Miranda Yates is one southwest Colorado landowner who's taking action. That prescribed burn Steve Underwood was working on earlier, that's her land. Saving the trees that you can, tree health, fire mitigation, things like that. For me, they're the most important thing about being a land steward. Yates started working on conservation and forest rehabilitation on the land as soon as she bought it. But keeping a landscape healthy takes more than just one prescribed burn. It's a long-term, ongoing process. In my mind, it's like, I'm looking at 10 to 15 years. So these are definitely like long-term goals. And then the beetles were a really important one to start with because they can be so devastating. And at the end of the day, Amy Lochner says pinion ips aren't going anywhere. And that's a good thing. When populations are at a healthy level, they serve an important role in the ecosystem.
6: They act as uh, kind of our natural recyclers. Again, in endemic state, they're just attacking, you know, the the weak trees, the old, the dying trees. So they do a really good job of kind of thinning our forests.
5: But for that to happen, drought conditions will need to subside in the region, ideally through better winter snowpack and summer monsoon rains. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Cortez, Colorado.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from K2L. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey. This is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Next, a look behind the scenes of our new limited podcast series with Steo called Facets, Voices of the Mountain Life. In five episodes, Facets explores the passions, tensions, and healing that people find while living in a mountain town. The fourth episode is called Leading the Change and was reported and produced by KHOL's Emily Cohen, who sat down to chat about our reporting with our Music and Community Affairs Director, Jack Catlin. Their conversation was recorded live in the KHOL studios earlier this month.
7: I have KHOL's Executive Director, Emily Cohen here with me today. We're going to be talking about the latest episode of Facets. Wyoming's women have been breaking down barriers ever since the state was the first to grant women the right to vote in 1869. This episode features contemporary pioneering women that have pushed the boundaries in Wyoming's landscape of extremes. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Always fun to be here in the studio with you.
7: So Emily, what initially inspired you to produce this episode?
2: So I've been in Wyoming for four and a half years now. And one of the things that struck me when I first moved here was how much gender dynamics seemed to be at play, whether it was the male to female ratio, that there's just so many more men or just this notion of a, quote unquote, bro culture. And this idea of that just was part of the zeitgeist. And while on many levels, Wyoming and the mountains did seem to be part of the hyper masculine culture It didn't seem like the whole story, because when I looked around, I saw many successful women, women at the helm of some of the community's most prominent institutions, like the Community Foundation, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, the Chamber of Commerce, and many, many nonprofits. And I just wanted to understand and explore what was going on and maybe see if that narrative could evolve a little bit and have some more nuance.
7: So the episode touches on some of the historical feats that Wyoming women have accomplished. Can you tell us a little bit about those?
2: Well, I think most people know, at least in Wyoming, about Wyoming's moniker as the equality state. It was the first state to grant women the right to vote. And then Jackson had the first all-female town council in 1920. The state had the first female governor. But now, a century later, we're not doing so great, especially when it comes to political representation among women. And now Wyoming is actually the most unequal in the country. Um, So there's now just four of 30 state senators, for example, that are female.
7: With that historical context in mind, how do you see the current situation, both in Jackson and Wyoming in general?
2: Well, it's not great. Um, Definitely. Like we talked about on political representation here in Jackson, you know, we have we do have a female mayor, our county commissioner. We have one female county commissioner. I think in this episode, um, Jackson Mayor Haley Morton Levinson and Lynette Grable, who was a U.S. candidate for Congress in 2020, both speak to this a lot. Talk about the importance of supporting other women running for office. You know, on other fronts, it's not necessarily great either. There's a national policy organization called the Women's Policy Research Group, and they evaluate the state or the status of women in each of the states in the country. And women earn and D's on their latest report card. Um, that's looking at everything from employment and earnings to political participation and health. In some respects, though, things are improving. There's more women-owned businesses now than there were, say, a decade ago. Women to men's earnings is also improving. It used to be 66%, and now it's 80%. So things are getting better. It's just slow progress.
7: So you spent months talking to and listening to all sorts of women in the area. Can you tell us a little bit more about a few of those featured in this episode?
2: The first woman I talked with was Melissa Mom, and she was the first woman on the Jackson Hole Ski Patrol. And this was back in 1978. So that was pretty cool. We um, actually spent a day skiing together at the resort. And then I also talked with a couple other women, sort of pioneers in the mountains, Catherine Cullinane, who was the first female EXIM guide. I talked with Jackson Mayer, Haley Morton-Levinson, and Lynette Grable. So women from all different sides of mountain life, from the mountains in the traditional sense to political involvement
7: so wyoming and jackson in particular present unique challenges and seem to attract courageous people who want to make a mark as a woman with a significant role in the community yourself here as executive director of KHL what is your perspective on the attraction of living in jackson and or wyoming
2: you know it's a small place and so opportunities are more available here in a way that they are not necessarily in a city or in a larger environment where there's just more competition. If you want to do something, you can make it happen. Usually, for example, I had no radio experience before joining KHOL. I think that if there is the ambition and the drive here, it's very success is very possible.
7: So Emily, closing up here, anything else you'd like to share with us?
2: I just think that there's a lot of complexity on this issue. And, and now, obviously, with the leaked Roe v. Wade um, draft decision, these issues are on the forefront of people's minds. This episode is not necessarily political in any way, but women's equity and opportunity and agency ultimately affects everybody. And so I would just encourage people to, to think about these issues, to take a listen to the podcast. There's only one more episode after this. And so, yeah, you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Yeah, you can listen to Facets on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The next episode airs next Friday, May 27th. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL, Jackson.
0: Our last story today was just recognized with a 2022 Regional Murrow Award for Outstanding Broadcast and Digital News. It was published in March 2021, shortly after Chronic Wasting Disease, or CWD, was first detected among elk in the Jackson Hole region. The discovery alarmed wildlife advocates across the country because of the practice of elk feeding in western Wyoming, which some critics say could facilitate a fast, catastrophic spread of the fatal disease. However, shutting down the long-standing feed grounds can't be done cold turkey. K2L's Will Walkie reports. Step over.
2: Step over.
3: During the winter months in the Grovant Wilderness, Jay Hogan's warnings sound like this. Each day, he harnesses up a team of horses to a large sled and directs them over to a mountain of hay, which is delivered by tractor at the start of the season. With the help of his daughter, Rita, he loads up the sleigh by hand with a few dozen bales.
1: Yeah, my leg's tired from kicking them.
3: Think of yoga. Think of doing yoga. And starts off into an open field where nearly a 1,000 elk congregate.
7: Go ahead, Rita.
3: While j mans the horses, Rita uses a hatchet to break apart and unload each bale, one by one, off the back of the sleigh for the elk to eat. There you go. Hogan has been managing one of 22 feed grounds owned by Wyoming Game & Fish in western Wyoming since 2006. It gets difficult at times, he says. Try lifting an 80-pound hay bale when it's 40 below out. But it's certainly never boring.
4: And if you get to see a clear day and see the Tetons, the Tetons are right there. I mean, look
3: at that line of elk is isn't that cool humans have been feeding elk in the jackson hole region for over a hundred years the practice was put in place to separate wildlife from human agriculture and infrastructure it also keeps elk alive when snow gets particularly deep in the wintertime and they have less of the natural landscape to feed off of hogan says he's seen elk starve before when they get stuck in deep snow
4: them years that that winter's deep they need to be fed Because more elk will die of starvation than they will
3: disease. One of the most worrying sicknesses he's referring to is chronic wasting disease, or CWD. CWD was discovered in December for the first time in Wyoming's feedgrounds regions in Grand Teton National Park. Similar to mad cow disease, CWD is always fatal, and wildlife experts in the area have reason to believe it's here to stay. It is a slow-moving disease. It takes a long time to get where it's going, but. You know, the fact remains that chronic wasting disease is here and it's probably not going away. Brad Hovingay is regional wildlife supervisor for the Jackson region of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. He's been a part of the planning effort to deal with the potential spread of CWD among Wyoming's elk feed grounds for several years. CWD also affects other ungulates like moose and deer and spreads through body fluids such as saliva or urine. Ben Wise is the Jackson Wildlife Disease Specialist for Game and Fish, and he's seen the disease's effects on elk up close and personal.
1: Their ears droop, they get a weird hair coat, they begin salivating, and yeah, it's not its not a pretty disease. It's not a quick and, and kind of gentle death either.
3: Wise says it can take up to two years before an animal succumbs to the disease, and in that time, they can spread it among their herd. Other local wildlife experts, including several biologists, say the feed grounds surrounding Jackson Hole provide perfect conditions for spreading the disease fast and causing a potentially catastrophic epidemic. That's why there are mounting calls and lawsuits demanding that Game and Fish close feed grounds sooner rather than later. But Wise says that's a pretty difficult ask.
1: We can't just stop feeding cold turkey. The the implications of that are dramatic. Um, If we were to just stop feeding, shut the feed grounds down tomorrow, we would be dumping a lot of elk into situations where we don't we don't have the ability to mitigate, mediate that.
3: More elk would be on roadways, for example, or getting into ranchers' hay, or. Dying of starvation. So Game and Fish has said it will likely be at least five to ten years before any feed grounds close. It seems like a lose-lose situation for nearly all parties involved, but experts like Wise and Hovingay are doing all that they can to mitigate disease spread in the meantime. And it all starts back at the feed grounds.
4: And the bulls don't come in; they stay out. They don't come in as
3: much. They just want to be in bachelor group. Hogan's well-oiled routine hasn't deviated much over the past 14 years, but even that's changing to accommodate for CWD risk. He and Rita now methodically drop hay bales off one by one every few yards rather than all at once or just whenever they can. Why? says that's deliberate.
1: It's called low-density feeding. If you spread the the feed out in kind of a uniform pattern on a larger area, the rate of contact greatly decreases because elk aren't just running up and down a single feed line. They're they have options of other places to go.
3: In the spring, when south facing slopes start to burn off and native foliage gets exposed again, feeders like Hogan also start to drop off less hay.
1: We slowly wean them off of supplemental feed as they begin using those native winter ranges more effectively throughout the, the spring.
3: And in some cases, like with two feed grounds near Pinedale this year, the feed grounds simply won't open at all. Hogan also says he's noticed collaring on elk, with a color-coded system signifying where each animal was originally tagged, in order to monitor animal movements and get a better understanding of the Greater Jackson elk herd as a whole. The red are here, and the green's the upper green, If a hunter shoots an elk, or if it dies in another way, Game and Fish will also retrieve, test, and dispose of it. Wise says tens of thousands of samples have been collected from the Jackson elk herd. Sometimes, as much as 90% of all elk killed in a season are tested in the region.
1: And by collecting those animals when they die, getting them off the feed ground, and testing them, A, we know whether or not they're positive, and B, We're also keeping the feed ground a lot cleaner.
3: At the same time, state lawmakers are debating a bill that would define what would have to happen should an elk feed ground need to be closed in the near future. And Hovingay says that's not such a bad thing. So it's an effort to try to make sure that all the right processes happen uh, should there be a proposal coming from somewhere to close down feed ground. Game & Fish concedes that CWD may continue spreading in Jackson Hole, just as it has in other parts of Wyoming and the Intermountain West that don't have feed grounds. Hogan says that's because elk naturally come together in the wintertime. They're going to congregate to here. Just same way with us,
4: we're going to go to where the lunch line is. I mean, they might be on, on different ridges and stuff, but they're still going to be together.
3: Much like another certain virus we're dealing with among humans, the question is how quickly, and whether at all, we can get CWD under control. Will Walkie, kh News.
0: Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week.
3: A workforce housing proposal at the Legacy Lodge Living Center in Rafter J has been denied by Teton County commissioners. The two-to-two decision effectively kills the plan, for now, to build 57 units of deed-restricted workforce housing at a former assisted living center. One of the deciding no votes Democrat Mark Newcomb says the density of the proposal simply does not meet the neighborhood character of Rafter J.
7: The units simply, to fit in with Rafter J, they need to be larger. They need to be livable. I'm not going to pretend to try and craft a vision beyond that. Um, But also, this community needs an assisted living facility.
3: Now, it's back to square one for the applicant, who was heavily criticized by Raptor J Neighbors for trying to push a plan through without their full approval. In an interview with the Jackson Hole News and Guide following the decision, the developer said, quote, it appears this neighborhood's history of housing workers may be coming to a close. Jim McCollum, the father of a 20-year-old Marine who was killed during the U.S. withdrawal of Afghanistan last August, announced his candidacy to represent Jackson in the Wyoming State House Tuesday. The carpenter and poet is running against Democrat Mike Yin, who has served House District 16 since 2018. The Republican says he despised politics for 15 years, but that things changed when he saw hundreds of people gather locally last year for a procession in his son's honor.
7: Coming home and seeing that parade, that kind
5: of it—it lit a fire in me that I can do something different. I had no idea. It's like after Riley's death, there's, there's a reason this happened. There's, there's something for me that
3: I need to do in my life going forward that's going to make a difference. A self-described constitutional conservative, McCollum says housing, the environment, and government transparency are some of the top issues he wants to bring to Cheyenne. Despite having a large platform, McCollum faces an uphill campaign battle against Yin. The incumbent has been a strong advocate for workforce housing, tax reform, and social justice issues.
0: That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band, Strombucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.